Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Shani Reichman. And I'm Evan Gottesman. And I'm Eli Koaz. Hey, guys. How's it going, everybody? Oh, it's going. It's going. I feel like we're about to record a podcast that we've done three times already. At least three. Mm, it's got to be more than that. It's easy to lose track now, but I'm having flashbacks to the beginning of 2019 when I sat down and recorded a podcast with our colleague Michael Koplow going through each of the individual Israeli political parties after the deadline to register their list of candidates had passed. And it was just a different world. You know, I was sitting in an office recording that podcast. I was thinking, this is going to be an election that's going to really change things. We're going to see a new government or we're going to see a definitive resolution to the issues at play in that contest. And uh, none of those things really panned out. Our colleague David was just reminding me on our previous call that um, back in April, he bet another panelist and friend of IPF that uh, that the better twenty dollars that there would not be a that there would be another election and uh, and she took the bet and uh, he made twenty dollars. There obviously would be another election. The question is when. Yeah, I mean, with, with all with all due respect to David, it seems like a pretty safe bet these days to say there's going to be an, another Israeli election. I mean, if someone makes a bet with you, is the sun going to come up? Um, <laughs> so should we uh, should we share with all of our listeners the long, long, long but maybe not as long as last time, list of uh, political parties? Yeah, we should. And we should explain the significance of today and why we are choosing today of all days to share the list of political parties and where they stand. Yeah. Evan, tell us, what exciting thing happened today in Israel? So we have just passed the deadline about a half an hour ago, as of when we're recording this podcast, for... Israeli political parties to register their list of candidates to run in the elections that is going to be held on March 23rd for the Knesset. Uh, Israel has a proportional representation system of government. That means that people don't vote for a specific candidate, although um, I'm about to go on a little bit of a tangent that that system was tried before in Israel. But uh, so you're not going to the polls and voting for Benjamin Netanyahu or Yair Lapid or 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 Ayman Oda or, or uh, whoever, you know, you think is your favorite candidate. You're voting for the Likud party, um, which Benjamin Netanyahu is number one on that party's list or Yeshatid and Lapid is number one on that list or Labor and Merav Michaeli is number one on that list and so on and so forth. And, you know, these parties register lists, uh, some of them that are quite expansive and go past the number of seats that the party is realistically going to get. But basically, the percentage of votes that that party gets um, is portioned out into the number of seats that that party gets in the Knesset. So, um, you know, a party that gets about a quarter of the vote in the election would get about 30 of the 120 seats in the Knesset. Um, there's one other thing to be aware of, which is that a party needs to get at least 3.25% of the vote, which comes out to about four seats uh, in the Knesset in order to even get representation. So even though, you know, getting uh, uh, 1%, uh, or not 1%, but even though getting less than 3.25%, you could theoretically have a portion of the Knesset have a, a couple of seats um, you need to pass that bar to get any seats at all. 
And some of what we see in advance of them finalizing their slates is some mergers. And a big part of what goes into that decision is whether or not they think they'll cross that threshold on their own. Some of them, in, in fear that they won't be able to manage, uh, combine with another party so that they can get big enough to get into the Knesset. Exactly. Exactly. So, like, uh, you know, if a party thinks that it's not going to pass the threshold, there's a consideration on both sides of the spectrum. Obviously, the party that thinks it might not pass the threshold has an interest in merging with the larger party so they have a chance or more realistic chance of getting some of the representatives into the Knesset. Uh, but the smaller, uh, the larger party also has a consideration, which is that if the smaller party is ideologically aligned with them, you could have this phenomenon called wasted votes, uh, which is that, you know, people will vote for parties that don't cross the threshold, uh, but their votes don't go anywhere. Uh, they don't get uh, translated to another party. So if another left wing party doesn't meet the threshold, then that's a loss for the entire uh, you know, left-wing block to the extent that it still exists, and 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 same for the right-wing and the religious, et cetera, et cetera. Speaking of fear of losing votes, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, for the past three elections and into this fourth one, has been very fearful of losing any right-wing votes, and as a result, the uh, and as a result of that, he has been pushing um, two of the very right-wing parties to join together. All very important points. Netanyahu was very adamant in this election that that no right-wing votes go to waste. And this is because of a predicament that Netanyahu finds himself in. Um, and I think that's the first thing. Before talking about the merger, I'll just talk about the position that Netanyahu is in this time, which will kind of clarify why it's so important for him to have this merger, with, which we'll talk about, which actually just happened. In the previous elections, uh, the blocks were pretty uh, clear and they that they were split up between the right-wing parties and the ultra-Orthodox parties. And then you would have the left-wing parties and the Arab parties or the center-left parties. In this election, you have two parties that are actually ideologically, I mean, you could argue about one of them, but they're ideal, ideologically at least in the same place as Netanyahu's party, or even more to the right of Netanyahu's party, in Yamina, and more specifically in Gidon Sar's New Hope party. Now, Gidon Sar has promised to not sit in a government with Netanyahu. So this makes it a lot harder for Netanyahu to reach the 61 seats that he needs, a coalition of 61 seats, because the math becomes a lot harder for him with parties competing with him on the right and not just the center left. So for that reason, he really needed these these two parties to merge before the deadline. And we're talking here about a party led by Betzalel Smotrich. The party's called the Religious Zionist Party. Before that, it was National Union Tkuma. Um, I'm sure most of our listeners know Betzalel Smotrich, but he's was a longtime uh, m- member of this party. He's been together in part in the last election. He was with Naftali Bennett, part of his Yamina merger party. But now he's on his own and he's rebranded the, the National Religious Party. It's a party that has very right-wing views and very it represents a, a big chunk of the settler movement. And constantly, in all the polls, he was under that 3.25% threshold that Evan talked about. 
So what Netanyahu encouraged was that the even further Kahanist party, which is led by Itamar Ben-Gvir, Jewish power, okay. in Hebrew it's, it's Otzmayudit, he wanted Ben-Gvir to join with Betzal Smotrich and also with a third party, uh, the Jewish Home, which is led by Chagit Moshe, in order to make sure that no votes on the right go to waste. Now, for Smotrich, this was a consideration that he he was kind of apprehensive because even for his voters, not all of Ben Gvir's opinions are in line. To some, they're too far. So, joining with Ben Gvir and the Jewish uh, Power Party ha- has a bit of a price tag. But it seems that what Netanyahu has promised promised Smotrich at least a role as a minister, and he he's given him enough to, to make this merger. So this merger was agreed upon between Vital Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir and their two parties. And there's also a, a third party that comes into this, but they're, they're a small party, but I should mention it because their views are even more extreme in some regards to the <laughs> Jewish power party, which is kind of hard to process or comprehend. A party called Noam, which is a... Uh, ultra-Orthodox, anti-gay uh, party, um, which have done some really horrific like campaigns uh, in, in Israel. So all these parties have joined together under uh, Smotrich, and they'll be in a good position to pass this threshold. And I would be surprised if they don't, but who knows? We'll see as the campaign progresses. And Hagit Moshe, who was the head of the Jewish Home Party, did not want to join. She's actually resigning. This is like really recent news that we just found out about. She's going to resign from the race completely and declare her support for Naftali Bennett. So this creates a situation on the right for Netanyahu, which no votes will really go to waste, which is for him, it gives him, though it's not a strong chance, it puts him in a position to get at least to think about how he can reach uh, 61 seats, uh, maybe in a coalition with with Bennett, who hasn't declared who he'll uh, recommend for prime minister. He's kind of trying to play it in the middle. But Netanyahu has definitely dodged a bullet here. But at the same time, he has to cater to these um, to, to these parties that really have a very extreme outlook on a lot of issues. Yeah, I just want to remind all of our listeners that Itamar Ben-Gavir is is much further to the right than the average Israeli citizen. And so it's not necessarily perceived um, very publicly that Netanyahu was um, pushing him uh, to make it into the Knesset, right? And I think that this time around, there's even a chance he gets a Knesset seat. Um, oh, there's is- not, yeah, there's a great chance because he's he's very, he, I think he's second or third on the, he's, on he's, the list. He's third on that alliance. He's third, he's right? Third so spot. that's, he's guaranteed if they pass the threshold to have a seat in the Knesset. And remember, there's this video that always people play of of the, this was during the Oslo process where uh, Ben Gvir is holding up the, it's, uh, what's it called? The, the symbol on the, the front of the, the car? The hood, the hood ornament. The, the, the hood the ornament. Em- the hood oh, emblem wow. saying, just like we got to this hood emblem, we will get to Rabin. Um, so obviously very, very extreme. Uh, he's a guy who has a picture of uh, Baruch Goldstein uh, in his uh, in his house. 
uh, Baruch Goldstein, who uh, murdered uh, dozens of uh, Palestinians in a mosque in Hebron in the 90s. Um, so, yeah, we're talking about a guy who's beyond the pale in terms of not not, his not just views. any mosque. Also, he, the, the it was in the the, the tomb of the patriarchs, of course. Yeah. So, um, but you know, Shani, you brought up the point about the the reputational risks to this because even though Israelis are by and large uh, lean to the right these days, uh, Ben is fairly uh, right wing, and, and of course, it is a risk for Netanyahu. But clearly, his calculation is that it's better for the right-wing block or the pro-Netanyahu block to get these four more seats uh, if this right-wing alliance passes the threshold uh, than it is to uh, not be perceived as, uh, you know, playing nice with uh, fascists and and Kahanists. And to a certain extent, I mean, obviously there's, uh, you know, some degree of revulsion and and protest. I mean, uh, Eli mentioned Hagit Moshe not wanting to deal with this alliance. But on the other hand, uh, you know, Netanyahu has already lowered the bar to this point because uh, in the uh, first election, the first uh, of this site, this now four election cycle in the the past two years, Netanyahu uh, uh, was working to facilitate a similar alliance also involving Otsma Yehudit and uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir. So, um, you know, this isn't new. It's upsetting, but it's not new. Since we're already uh, since we're already thinking of our spectrum in terms of pro and anti BB instead of right and left, since that entire spectrum is a bit confusing at the moment, maybe we should talk about the ultra orthodox parties, Shas and United Terror Judaism, right now because they seem to continue to have unwavering support for Netanyahu. They, they do, and so that's also very interesting because the ultra orthodox are kind of at the heart of the COVID nineteen pandemic in Israel. And there's a lot of animosity um, from large parts of the Israeli public uh, towards the ultra-Orthodox. There there are a whole bunch of reasons, but having uh, recently last week, they had a funeral where like tens of thousands of people uh, attended. And they're really in the heart of uh, what's going on right now with the lockdown that Israel's been in for almost for for over a month now. So Netanyahu's alliance with them has become under a certain amount of scrutiny just because of uh, how, despite having higher infection rates in all these ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods, the lockdowns have maintained, uh, have been pretty much the same and even more enforced uh, outside of the Haredi uh, towns and neighborhoods, so this is something that has a lot of Israelis upset. Um, but both both the ultra orthodox parties, UTJ and Shas, they're polling at a consistent uh, about eight seats each. This is not something that changes that much. I mean, we've seen it from election to election: one seat here, one seat there. But they're them in, like they're in a relationship with Netanyahu, and that's not going to be. I don't think I don't see a reason for that to be changed. And um, as we talk about the other parties, a lot a lot of parties are really embracing this 
targeting the ultra-Orthodox and Netanyahu's allegiance to the ultra-Orthodox, um, especially uh, Avigdor uh, Lieberman's Israel Beitenu party and also Yair Lapid as well. So they're definitely going to play a, a big role in, in this election. And they also may complicate things for Netanyahu uh, in that regard. Unfortunately, Netanyahu probably doesn't have much of a choice, right? He, his coalition relies heavily on the ultra-Orthodox parties. While it might alienate some others like Yair Lapid, those folks probably weren't going to join a coalition with Netanyahu anyway. So he's probably better sticking with the ultra-Orthodox who we can count on. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, go ahead, Evan. Yeah, I, I wonder. I wonder how much of an effect, though, it really has. I mean, people... You know, to a certain extent, people's minds seem made up. Obviously, there there must be some degree of election fatigue. But you know, uh, you know, we just mentioned Avigdor Lieberman, uh, who runs this secular right wing Israel Beitenu party that you know it's mostly appealing to uh, immigrants from the former Soviet Union. Okay, so they oppose the ultra orthodox. But like, what else is new? Avigdor Lieberman, uh, you know, helped bring uh, Israel into this cycle of ongoing elections at the beginning when he refused to join any government after the April 2019 election. And now he's kind of, I want to say, faded into complete irrelevance as his party has um, isn't growing. Um, it, its voter block is kind of stagnant, but it still has like a consistent base. Um, but at the same time, you know, once he was the kingmaker, now he's kind of like he's not really talked about quite as right. much. No, that's exactly um, right, Evan. Um, I'll just make one more point before, and kind of maybe this will help us transition uh, to the more to the center left of of the Israeli political map. Is that one thing that has happened recently that Netanyahu has to be happy about is seeing Yair Lapid kind of emerge as the main challenger in the polls um, to to Netanyahu before. The past few weeks, um, and ever since uh, Gidon uh, Sar announced his New Hope Party, it was Gidon Sar who was second in the polls. And Netanyahu's campaigns have always been, it's kind of us versus them, right versus left. And with Sar, he had a real challenge in how is he going to create that kind of uh, dichotomy, that, that split between um, him and Sar. And with Lapid, it... it it's a lot easier. So you'll all, you already hear in his campaign messages saying that it's either vote Likud or you're voting for a Lapid government led by the left. He's kind of trying to take Sar out of the equation. So that's a, a development that I think you'll see uh, Netanyahu really trying to take advantage of as the campaign uh, heats up. Try to make this a him versus Lapid and give less attention to, to Sar. We'll see how it works. Eli, before we head to the center, I think we should speak a little bit about Naftali Bennett's party and Mina, because it's not clear to me whether or not he's playing to join Netanyahu or the anti-BB coalition, as it's called. I know. He, yeah, he's, he's being really secretive and really clever. He's, I mean, I've seen him on a bunch of interviews on Israeli TV just... I, I don't know if it's clear to Bennett uh, who he's joining. It's I, it's not, and he's been deflecting the questions really uh, <laughs> in a really obvious way. Uh, I think at the end of the day, he'll probably I, he's open to being in a government with Netanyahu. He's trying to market himself as 
a candidate for prime minister, um, but it seems unrealistic. Remember, for a time during the uh, when we weren't in this election cycle, when COVID was uh, raging rampant in Israel, and when the vaccine uh, campaign hadn't really taken off yet, he was in second place. He got within, I think, maybe within like. 10 seats of the of the Likud. So it seemed for a second that he could be the alternative. But since Saar joined and since the map really took shape, uh, the political map in this election, it's clear that he won't be the one to form this, the next government. It's either going to be Netanyahu or either or Lapid or, or, or Saar looking more like Lapid. But what he is offering is... He's talking a lot about his COVID relief plan, which is like uh, he actually wrote a book on it. Um, he recently added a a new political persona to his list, which is the former mayor of Sterot. And uh, he's the mayor of Sterot's very, very popular guy, Alon Davidi. Um, he's been very involved keeping the city's morale uh, positive despite years of rocket attacks from Gaza. So he's going to be number three on Yamina's list. But but they're not in a position to become uh, a party that can challenge Netanyahu. So at the end of the day, Bennett, in a sense, is going to be the kingmaker. And he's going to decide if Netanyahu, uh, depending how the math works out, but it could very well be that he decides whether Netanyahu can make this coalition with the ultra-Orthodox parties and the Kahanist alliance, or will it be a party without Netanyahu, with uh, Lapid, with Gidon Sar, with Israel Beitenu? Uh, we haven't mentioned the word Benny Gantz yet. I'm sure we will, um, but uh, we'll have to see about him. Uh, so, so Yamina will play a big role, um, but it's not clear... Uh, what that role will be. But I would say that Bennett is really trying to... uh, He also does... If he came out against Netanyahu, I think he would turn off a lot of of, of his voters. So he's trying to, like, tread the line between being open to sitting with Netanyahu and at the same time being open to not... to try to bring in voters from more of the center-right and that's why he's also not talking about issues like annexation and the Palestinian issue. Um, so he's really trying to navigate. And I think he's kind of spreading himself too thin in a way. But we'll have to see how that plays out. Well, if he wants any hope of being the prime minister, he definitely will have to remain friends with his buddies in Likud. So it's probably uh, not a terrible idea with the way he's been playing it so far. Should we move to uh, the, uh, the prime minister who never leaves? And what this election has looked like for him as he's been court- courting some unusual suspects. The, who, the, are we talking about the alternative prime minister, Benjamin Gantz? No, I was actually talking oh. I was talking about Netanyahu and, and how he's been visiting several Arab so, towns, so, <laughs> meeting with their so, Arab count, the Arab councils and local cities, campaigning on TikTok. It's fascinating that, we, I mean, uh, it's fascinating that we were talking about how he was pushing for this merger of Kahanists. Uh, but at the same time, he's really trying to uh, get Arab uh, Likud voters at the same time. So um, like from extreme to extreme, I don't know how effective this will be. 
But actually, today, uh, he announced, the Likud announced three, when we talk about reporting uh, the lists for the Knesset, Netanyahu was able to have three appointments um, that were, are not involved in the, the Likud primary. So he actually picked a uh, Israeli Arab to be on his list. Yeah, he, he put him very, very generously. He put this guy in the 39th spot on the list. And for context, for our listeners, Likud is polling in like the high 20s, low 30s. So right. uh, this guy, I think his name is Niall Zawabi. Yeah. He has no chance of getting in the Knesset. So very progressive. Yeah, I know. But it is the fr- it is the first, uh, I think it's the first time ever, actually, that uh, the Likud... Uh, have appointed an Arab on their list, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yes, unless you don't, you don't want to get into the contentious uh, debate, and it's, it's and oh, it, really see it as our place, whether Jews are yeah, uh, yeah, Arabs. no, but yeah, yeah. Um, and then also the, he also appointed. Uh, I mean, I don't want to. We could talk about Orly Levy, <laughs> but he he actually appointed Orly Levy as well. I think she was at the 26th spot, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so she's on the Likud list, and radio personality Galit Distal Atbarian um, at the tenth list. Um, uh, so it's really uh, interesting to see how Netanyahu is really trying to appeal to the uh, Israeli Arab uh, sector, but at the same time pushing for this Kahanist uh, merger. So we'll see how that turns out. Now, even if it's ten, twenty thousand votes. That could be significant in Netanyahu's uh, race to get to 61. Remember, if you, roughly, I think in the last election, it was about 34,000 votes is equal to one seat. So it could move things here. And like even a few, moving a few tens of thousands of votes can, can make an actual difference. Yeah. And, and also, I think it's a question, you know, Shani, you, you raised uh, idea of uh, Netanyahu courting Israeli Arab voters. And Eli, you were you know, drawing the contrast with what Netanyahu is doing with these fascist Kahanist parties, which are, of course, um, you know, big promoters of anti-Arab racism. And I think it's a question of whether you view this as a genuine uh, attempt to conduct outreach to Arab voters and really work with Arab voters and uh Arab citizens of Israel, or whether it's more of kind of a divide and conquer strategy to help further fracture the opposition. And I think that there's an element of both there, although I think it leans more heavily on the latter, more on this divide and conquer uh, strategy, because that's been, I think, Netanyahu's great success is that his block is not really getting bigger. I mean, we talked about, you know, 120 seats in the Knesset, so 61 to have a majority. Netanyahu is not necessarily closer to getting a majority, but that doesn't really matter for him because his overriding interest in all of this is to stay out of jail and uh, to hold on to the prime minister's seat, whether he's um, prime minister or acting prime minister of a transitional government. They're just going election to election. So as long as he keeps fracturing his opposition and breaking them up, then he's um, in a fairly safe position. So what he's doing now with the Israeli Arab public really ties into the way things have been going for the joint list, which is the alliance of uh, three Arab parties, formerly four. And that's uh, significant to what's going on now. Uh, Netanyahu 
um, had been starting to develop a kind of working relationship with Mansour Abbas, who's the leader of one of the uh, Arab political parties that was formerly part of the joint list, um, the United Arab List, or known by its Hebrew acronym, RAM. Um, and, um, you know, now the joint list is only three parties. And they're on track to come out with about five seats fewer than they currently have in the Knesset. Um, and that's because he he's sort of peeled away uh, Mansour Abbas and the United Arab List. It's not clear that the United Arab List would necessarily support Netanyahu, but that doesn't matter as long as he just makes his opposition smaller and more fractured. Um, and, you know, again, Netanyahu, as Eli said, it would be happy to get a, a couple more thousand votes here and there. And this, I think, comes around to one of Netanyahu's, uh, you know, skills as a politician. You know, there are a lot of people who have speculated, you know, how does Netanyahu do it? Is he really a political wizard? Is it just luck? But I will say is that Netanyahu has no scruples about working with anyone. Um, you know, uh, Ayman Oda, the, the head of the joint list, gave a speech uh, joking uh, in the uh, in the session of the Knesset when they dissolved the Knesset between the, the April 2019 election and the September 2019 election, where he said Netanyahu uh, has actually agreed to have the joint list in his government, despite Netanyahu's history of race baiting and anti-Arab statements and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if only he. Uh, and Netanyahu has agreed to compromise uh, and end the occupation of the West Bank, uh, repeal the nation state law, all these things that, of course, Netanyahu uh, would be opposed to doing uh, in order to get the joint list in his government. And this was a joke. It was meant to be funny on Oda's part. But, it, you know, it had a little bit of truth to it that Netanyahu really, um, you know, will 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 make deals here and there. And he's had governments in the past with people who are associated with the Israeli center-left, like Yair Lapid or Tzipi Livni. Um, so they might try to count on the support or at least uh, do some deals with a party like the United Arab List, which is, is a conservative religious Islamist party, um, is not totally out there. Um, you know, whereas the, the anti-Netanyahu opposition seems to be a web of interlocking uh, pledges not to work with this and that party. You know, one party says they won't work with the other. And we won't work with the joint list or we won't sit with merits and so on and so forth. And, you know, Netanyahu will sit with whoever will support Netanyahu um, uh, when it comes down to it. The United Arab Party, Ram, actually, uh, they claim that they are potentially even willing to sit with Netanyahu. So it's kind of mutual. Uh, they essentially said that as long as they can get what they want, sit in the sit on the right committees and uh, use money towards their own communities, they're more than happy to sit with Netanyahu. And in fact, this is likely what caused uh, the fracturing of the joint list because Ayman Oda and the other three parties were not willing to commit to that necessarily. Right. Yeah. And that's exactly right. I mean, Mansour Abbas, who's the leader of Ram, said in his speech that we're not right, we're not left, kind of like almost Benny Gantz-esque. Uh, and he, these are the same people that Netanyahu in the last election called terrorists, supporters, sympathizers. So it's just, it's interesting. And, and I guess this will be a test uh, to see. Uh, it, it will be interesting to see 
how uh, Israel, uh, Israel, Israel's Arab uh, citizens decide to vote in this election, or even if how many of them do decide to vote, because we saw uh, really high turnouts in the last election, um, and the joint list is at 16 seats that they received, I think, which was the highest ever. So we'll have to see how that uh, plays out. I know that the joint list didn't fully split up, but I saw a poll that if it did, 25% of Israeli Arabs said they would vote for a Jewish party, whereas in that last election, only 12% voted for Jewish parties. So just something to keep in mind. And we don't know which Jewish parties they were voting for. That, that's an interesting statistic that you raise, because in the April 2019 election, the joint list had also split up. You had Hadash and Tal, uh, respectively, the parties of Ayman Oda and uh, Ahmad Tibi run as one list. And then you had United Arab List along with the, the Nationalist Party, Balad, on another. And I think in that election also, it was about a quarter of Israeli Arabs who voted voted for Jewish parties. Um, something that we have seen, though, is that when the joint list is split up, when the Arab parties are not running together, it has a tendency to depress Arab turnout. At the same time, the, the you know, what, uh, you know, the joint list doesn't necessarily have to be the only game in town. And I think that it taps into a real uh, current in Israeli Arab society. I don't, I'm not going to suggest that it's necessarily the majority, um, but, you know, people who may be disappointed with the joint list. Uh, I think that a lot of people probably vote for the joint list out of a sense of, uh, you know, community allegiance or pride. Um, but in terms of the joint list's actual policies, I mean, there was a uh, degree of disappointment when the joint list uh, voted not to ratify the agreements between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, um, which was something that most Israeli Arabs supported. Um, so, you know, and and uh, Netanyahu has had kind of the uh, the the support in some uh, measure from the mayor of Nazareth, uh, Ali Salem, who who you know Nazareth is the largest. Uh, predominantly Arab city in Israel. So, uh, you know, I think it's significant. Maybe it'll change, it'll uh, compel the joint list to change its tack. And, uh, you know, we'll have to see. Uh, I think... It seems we kind of skipped yes. over some of that center and For center sure. Left, well, actually, so I think it's a good transition because we're talking about uh, the Israeli... Arabs that may vote for a, a Zionist party, and we'll, we can talk about uh, labor and we can talk about merits because both both labor and merits um, actually have Arab representation in their in realistic uh, places. And by realistic places, I mean in terms of where they're polling, whether or not um, the chances of uh, Arab MK entering the Knesset from one of the, uh, from one of the, the the parties. So let's talk about labor for a second because it's really fascinating what has happened with labor and even in the past two weeks. Remember, we talked on the podcast about labor, the party that founded Israel, obviously the party of Ben Gurion and Rabin being completely dead. Uh, we spoke, or at least half. <laughs> Half buried. Um, we spoke about what Amir Peretz uh, did to the party by joining uh, the government. So a few weeks ago, we had leadership, um, a leadership primary, where uh, Merav Michaeli actually won. She first of all had to 
Amir Peretz didn't want the primary to happen. Mikhaili actually had to take it to court, and she won, and they had the primary, which in the primary she almost received 90% of the vote. She won, um, and then the next week um, we had over uh, 60 candidates register for Labor's, uh, the primary for the Labor list, um, which was decided, and that was that happened last Friday, and um, with pretty high uh, voter turnout, you also had 10,000 new members join the Israeli Labor Party, and in all the polls since uh, Merav Michaeli uh, won uh, the the Labor leadership, they've been over the electoral threshold, and we saw them uh, in our. Uh, uh, Camille Fuchs is a previous podcast guest, one of the leading pollsters in Israel, had uh, the Labor up to eight seats. And so this is, I mean, eight seats for the Labor Party sounds low looking at Israel's history. But if we're looking at just what happened a few months ago, how we were talking about Labor, Merav Michaeli, we'll see how things go from here. But she definitely deserves a lot of credit to see where labor is. And there's kind of a renewed energy and a lot of people um, who previously voted for other parties are uh, now uh, considering to vote. And as uh, Mayor Michael would say, come home, come back to the labor party. So we'll have to see how that uh, affects um, the parties in the center left, uh, how it affects merits in particular, because merits, both these parties uh, were past the deadline for the uh, re- for the merger registration. Both these parties are running by themselves. Um, we can touch on the fact that um, these parties decided not to merge with any of the other left wing parties that were uh, in th- the playing field. We had uh, there was a lot of excitement in the beginning, or people were talking about the mayor of Tel Aviv, Ron Huldai's party, the Israelis, um, they're completely out. He's resigned. He did that today before the deadline. Also, Ofer Shelach, who broke off from Yesh Atid, um, he resigned as well with his party, Tnufa. Again, they were both below the threshold consistently in the past few polls that we saw, um, but they're both not running. So we'll have to see how this the remaining vote gets uh, is dispersed we'll have an indication already tomorrow when we start seeing some polls but a lot of really interesting changes um going on in the israeli left kind of back to where we were traditionally but i'm curious to get your guys's thoughts uh, on how much this does this really jeopardizes merits now that you have a resurgent labor party and what are, what you guys think is is merits in trouble? And also, um, we can talk about uh, one thing that I just wanted to mention is just because the the list of mergers, um, ha- like mergers can't happen anymore, but parties can obviously still withdraw from the race. So when I'm looking at that, we're talking about, we'll get into it, but we're talking about Benny Gantz um, because he's not cr- passing the threshold in the most recent polls. And there's also another party, the... It's called uh, Miflaga Kalkalit, the uh, economic party, um, which have also been just under the threshold, um, also looking for center-left voters. So we'll have to see what happens with those two parties as well.
I know it may not have been significant enough to make a difference, but as we spoke about earlier, we don't have we haven't seen any polling since the new mergers, right? So in the last polls, you still had a fresh party, which um, <laughs> that, was that polling is, at about, about I 0%, think they were at point three. But at it one, still one was there. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And but you did have also run Huldai's right. party, um, which I think was a, a little, little above zero percent, right? And yeah. these these yeah. folks, but they did draw from centrist parties, right? For they sure. did draw centrist voters, and so it is possible that you would see a little bit more right. for Larat and, Mabor, right. and Labor and Kaholavan, um, blue and white, with them in the running. And now that they're gone, it could be a little bit more. Yeah, I think that the the return of of labor is is a good thing generally for the Israeli center left obviously as as Eli noted they're a little bit past their peak performance even though they have returned from the grave i mean they they are only 34 seats off from uh, Yitzhak Rabin's performance in 1992 but you know it's, it's a high benchmark so they're, it's a high they're ahead of Avi Gabay's performance and and, and Amir Peretz's and Amir Peretz's which i think is significant because uh, you know, we were talking about the uh, issue of labor not running on the same list with merits. And I have to wonder if there is a reputational issue at play there that uh, perhaps labor and merits leaders considered it was unwise to run together, that the optics of that might not be quite right. Because in the last election, merits, which is the leftmost, uh, you know, Jewish party, although they've tried in recent years and especially in this uh upcoming cycle to mold themselves more as a Jewish Arab party. But in any case, you know, Meretz is pretty left wing and they ran, they took a risk running alongside Labour and Orly Levy's uh, Gesher party um, on a joint list and, uh, you know, only to be burned and have two thirds of Labour and Orly Levy leave and join Netanyahu, which is like the exact opposite of anything Meretz people would ever want. So even even though Meirav Michaeli is very left wing, very much in the mold of uh, more the traditional peace camp labor, and, and I don't doubt her sincerity, um, you know, is probably a consideration that, you know, maybe there needs to be some trust built up. And, and I think that Meretz has kind of like Yisrael Beitenu in a way, um, you know, these are not two parties you usually compare because ideologically they're very different. But you know, they have their solid voter base. They're not, they're never going to be the biggest party. They're never even going to be close, but like, um, and they might not have huge growth potential. Um, but I, I think merits will pass the threshold and, and, you know, maybe there, there's some issue of wasted votes, but, um, in terms of number of seats that they could get, uh, I think labor had an interesting consideration here. And I'm curious what both of you think on this, but, uh, you know, we, we've touched on this a couple of times in this podcast and we've mentioned it in other programs and, you know, it's just something, to know about Israeli politics, which is that the electorate has moved to the right over the past 25, 30 years. So labor leaders have done this weird dance and and other leaders of center left parties of trying to play to the right um, and adjust their positions or adjust the way that they talk about issues, especially as they concern the Palestinians and the occupation and Israeli Arabs and and, uh, conflict related issues and uh, try and appeal to right wing voters. and uh, I think that, you know, if the, the polling, um, if what we're seeing in the polling is borne out in the actual results of the election, then I think this will be some degree of proof that uh, staying true to labor's roots is actually 
a more viable option than trying to feign being right wing because, you know, as we've said, labor is nowhere near its peak uh, where it was 30 years ago um, or even, frankly, where it was five years ago um, when labor got 19 seats uh, as part of the Zionist Union. Um, but, you know, it's better than zero seats. And as you mentioned, Eli, it's better than Avigaba's performance um, two years ago. So um, it, it's something to consider uh, in terms of, of what they're doing, because the way, you know, I'm not Israeli, I'm not an Israeli voter. So, you know, I can't say for certain, but I would have to imagine if you're a right winger and you believe in right wing values, you're not going to vote for the Labour Party, even if they they are wearing right wing makeup and trying to pretend to be right wing. Um, but if you're a left wing voter who wants to vote for the Labour Party, you may be put off by the Labour Party trying to, uh, you know, walk the right wing walk um, or, 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 or however you want to put it. So um, it seems like just going back to what Labour has generally stood for in the past. Yeah, uh, no, I think I have an is, is, is a better strategy. Sorry, go ahead, Shanae. <laughs> I was going to agree with Evan, too. <laughs> I think Marav Michaeli really reflects the values of the Labour Party, and I think that it will bode well for them in this election. I, at least I hope it does. But I think that um, she really embodies the values that they claim to have, and I think people will be excited to vote for her in a way that they I, were not I agree. excited and to go vote for Also, I think in a, in a country where uh, women are seriously unrepresented in in parliament and in uh, policymaking, it's great to see that, first of all, Michaeli is leading the party, but also she made sure that the list is actually completely uh, equal and it uh, alternating between, th there are five women in the in the top 10 and it alternates uh, as the list uh, goes down and also merits as well. I think they have six women in their top 10. So I think th it's really really, really good to see. Um, and just touching on what Evan spoke about earlier about the mergers, I think um, there is value in them running independently. I think there was, in the last election at least, when they joined up with, with Gesher as well, there was this false sense of it guaranteed, being guaranteed to pass the threshold. So a lot of traditional left voters would say, to themselves, oh, uh, merits and labor will be fine anyways because they've merged. We're going to go and vote for blue and white, it was last election, or the party that's challenging Netanyahu. Because now that they're running separately, I think that is almost uh, that effect is going to be gone and people are going to vote much more closer to what their actual like values are and what their beliefs are. So if someone believes in Labour Party values, and both of you talked about how uh, Merav Michaeli embodies those values, they'll vote for Labour. If they believe in merits values, they'll vote for merits. If they believe in Yeshatid values, if they're more centrist, they'll vote for uh, Lapid. So I think it will be a, an election where, and that's why I agree with Evan in the sense that I think that both merits and Labour will be fine. I do think that because of Michaeli's uh, as Evan mentioned, uh, being more traditional on the left side of labor in terms of the fact that she represents kind of peace camp labor. We will probably see within the campaign some d differentiation 
um, from Merritt's in order to kind of create a bit of room uh, in between the parties just to kind of take pressure off Merritt's because I think we'll see Merritt's right around the threshold, maybe a bit above. Um, so I think that's just something to, to keep an eye on. Yeah, and, and hopefully this will give some stability to the Labour Party. I mean, Labour has really gone for a ride in the past couple of years. It seems like ancient history. Uh, sorry, one sec. Let me close Slack. Um, yeah, and hopefully this will introduce a degree of stability for the Labour Party. Labour has really gone for a ride in the past couple of years. I mean, it seems like ancient history to think about it, but... In 2015, Labour polled 19 seats, and together with uh, Hatz Nua, the, the party of Tsipi Livni, I think they had 24 or 25 seats, uh, went together as uh, the Zionist Union. And of course, that wasn't enough to uh, knock out Netanyahu, but this is hardly a party that we would have uh, discussed as a dying party or a party at risk of missing the electoral threshold. So it's not totally out of reach for labor to claw its way back into uh, you know, the Israeli political mainstream. In that election, labor and uh, Livni were seen as the main challengers to Netanyahu. Now they're kind of a niche special interest party um, for, for the, the left. But, uh, and, and since 2015, back then the party was led by Isaac Herzog, uh, Labor has seen a succession of new leaders. You had Herzog, and then you had Avi Gabay, and then you had Amir Peretz, uh, who, of course, had led Labor previously, and now Meirav Michaeli. And, of course, there's something to be said for turnover and new faces and trying different things. But you compare that to Likud, and again, people have tried to uh, divine what the secret to Likud's success is. And, uh, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu has been the chairman of the Likud since 2005. Uh, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing uh, from from a democracy perspective and, and from an institutional perspective, but it certainly helps the party build a consistent brand. Um, you know, you look at any other party and outside of the parties that are kind of like personal parties like Yeshatid um, with its leader. It's rhyming leader, Yair Lapid, or Yisrael Beitenu with Avigdor Lieberman. Uh, other parties, and, and I guess some of the ultra-Orthodox parties, um, other parties don't really have quite uh, anything approaching that level of continuity. Uh, Meretz also has gone through, uh, cycled through a bunch of different leaders in the past couple of years, um, throwing people in and out, and, and it's just something to think about. So... If Michaeli is able to be successful and sticks true to what labor voters are looking for, then uh, perhaps labor can ride things out and start to rebuild even better. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think I think now is is probably. I mean, it's been a whirlwind. What a whirlwind from Benny Gantz! It was only, it was two years ago that just over two years ago that he announced his party, and who would have thought that? Three election cycles, beating Netanyahu's Likud party, getting to this point, b- breaking up blue and white, joining the Netanyahu government. Almost all his MKs have left him. Um, it's just—it's really like I don't know if if sad is the word. It's just 
a fascinating and a very short and almost like tragic political career of someone who it seemed like could become Israel's prime minister and maybe could still, but we can talk about that later, but it's pretty unlikely. But yeah, uh, the last polls have had him, a few have had him at four seats, a few have had him below the threshold. He likes to take credit for a lot of kind of keeping this government that didn't last that long, um, but keeping the government in check. Some people give him credit for helping protect protect the Israeli judiciary. Some people give him credit for helping stop or kind of put on hold West Bank annexation, though I'm not sure how much credit he deserves there. Um, considering that what actually stopped West Bank annexation is this uh, normalization agreement with the UAE, um, and he apparently, and that's also only formalization, also only addressing right? Formal exactly, annexation, creeping annexation, exactly, exactly, and he's obviously not doing pace. anything about that. I don't know. I mean, it's premature, but I would suspect that if Gantz continues to poll under four seats. I would be very surprised if he does not decide to resign. And I think if he does decide to to um, to continue and to run into the end and to risk that, it would be a very, very selfish move. And I don't think it suits him. I mean, you can say a lot of things about Gantz, but I, I do think that for the most part, I, I think he made a string of very bad decisions, but I'm not sure that his intentions were all were all negative. I think he had intentions that were actually uh, to do good for the uh, Israeli public. I think he just made a, a string of, of bad decisions. You guys are obviously w- welcome to, to, to disagree with me uh, there. No, I'm also someone who's pretty optimistic about Benny Gantz's intentions, but despite being uh, a person who has supported him from the onset, I have to say it's hard to see his time in Knesset as anything but a complete failure to uh, deliver on what he plans to deliver on. I think that it's pretty obvious that he made a massive mistake in joining with Mr. Niao, and at this point we can all see it. So it might be a time for him to pack up along with many right. of the other members And I also think party. it's important to note that there's no one, I mean, when we're talking about these people that are, um, like we talk, we mentioned Ron Chudai, we mentioned Ofer Sherlach, people that are getting out of the race. These are not votes that are in between the Netanyahu camp and the anti-Netanyahu camp. Most of these votes will just be dispersed among the respective camps. So the only thing here at risk is that these parties don't reach the 3.25% threshold. The, the votes just disappear, which pretty much uh, helps the bigger parties and the biggest party almost certainly will be the Likud. So uh, that's something to keep in mind. And I, I would be very surprised if, like I said, if Gantz doesn't uh, drop out and also if the econo- economic party also uh, doesn't uh, drop out as well. Um, and also... I think if these parties do stay until the uh, election and it's clear that they're not going to pass the threshold, a lot, I mean, the amount of Israelis that vote for them will significantly uh, decline. 
Yeah, frankly, I don't know what the appeal of Benny Gantz is right now. You know, even if he just passes the threshold or even if he's just under the threshold. And I know I made that joke about uh, one tenth of one percent, but that more applies to parties like Ofer Shelach's and uh, uh, Ran Khudai's party and also the, the new pensioners party. And we can talk about all of those in a moment. But, you know, uh, Gantz is probably closer to the threshold and there it's more of a risk uh, for for the anti Netanyahu bloc because that's more a more consequential amount of uh, votes going away. Also, he hasn't withdrawn yet, whereas some of these other parties have withdrawn. Uh, but yeah, you know, uh, Gantz has admitted that he made a mistake. Um, you know, I, I'm with both of you on his good intentions and his sincerity, but the old saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So I don't know how much that counts for. I also can't help but wonder how things might have been differently in a world without COVID. Um, that's something we haven't talked about in this entire podcast. Maybe we're all just desensitized to it. Um, but it's still raging. It's still horrible. And I think the coronavirus pandemic really delivered Netanyahu um, a real lifesaver um, through, through him a lifeline uh, in the sense that Netanyahu had a real um, and you could say even genuine uh, imperative in, in asking the different parties to put their differences aside and work to confront this global public health crisis, which affected Israel and is affecting Israel as it affects everywhere else in the world. And, um, you know, that put a lot of pressure on Gantz to cave and join Netanyahu. Clearly, other people like Lapid had uh, better political instinct and chose not to join. Uh, but I don't know how forgiving the Israeli public would have been at the beginning of the pandemic about being thrown into another election when there was so much more uncertainty just a year ago about, you know, would it be safe to go to the, the ballot box? Would it be safe to go out and campaign? Obviously, there's still risks. I don't want to pretend that the, uh, the, the risks of the disease have been taken away, but I think people have a little bit more comfort and a little bit more wherewithal about what you can do safely and how you can do things safely during the pandemic than they did a year ago. And so um, if Israeli voters weren't going to tolerate another election, well, um, you know, this kind of fit within Gantz's brand of being uh, statesmanlike, the, this whole uh, thing, you know, of of serving the civic interest and, and trying to combat it. Of course, it seems like such a, a quaint notion to think of this this past Israeli government as being rooted in the purpose of fighting the coronavirus, because uh, while it has had uh, some successes, including with the, the rollout of the vaccine, the government was also plagued by a lot of political right. infighting. I mean, I don't want to get bogged down talking about last election. I'm sure we're going to wrap up soon. Um, but at that point when Gantz decided to join the Netanyahu government, it, we were talking about either there being a, yet another election, but there was also the alternative of Netanyahu who only needed two more uh, Knesset seats to just get Orly Levy who just joined, uh, she just joined like Likud officially and get um, maybe uh, Yoaz Hendel and Sfi Hauser, who are part of, uh, now they're part of Gidon Sar's party, um, to join. So he maybe Netanyahu had a path to a government uh, without Gantz. So maybe that was a consideration that, that, that Gantz had as well. But uh, that's for the 
for the Israeli elect election history books to to write about and not <laughs> we have more we have a, a new election to deal with um so uh i did did we miss anything i think we covered all the uh i think we covered all the bases Well, we didn't talk about the Pirates Party or Egal Amir's wife's party, but I think... Yeah, definitely. I think and that's it's also interesting now. because uh, the last thing I'll add is when, when you vote in Israel, each party has... Uh, it's up to three letters. It's like an ID kind of of, of each party. So uh, traditionally, like the Likud is Mem, Chet, Lamed, Machal. Labor is Aleph, Mem, Etaf. Emet. But for all these new parties, they're, they're really, it's like important to them to, to get their letters. So there's actually like, there's a lineup to actually register and to get your letters in. And, uh, they actually, uh, Yeshatid, who we didn't really talk about that much, uh, considering they're the main party challenging the Likud, they were worried that Benny Gantz would try to take their letters, uh, pay hey, which have been the letters of Yashatid, they became the letters of Kaholavan. So they actually had one of their MKs, Miki Levi, actually camp outside of the registration uh, office uh, in order to make sure that Yashatid gets gets those letters. So Yashatid indeed got the letters, pay hey, and I think Benny Gantz got got something else. I I, I forget, but. I'm not sure how big of a difference <laughs> that will make at the end of the day, but yeah, it's 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 not it's not just three letter codes as you alluded to with uh, Yeshatid's traditional code. I mean, I want to take this moment to salute uh, Israel Beitenu, despite the fact that I, I think I agree with them on on very very little on one on one thing the very the solitary lamed. It's so it's so sim, uh, simple, and of course that lamed <laughs> is a lamed. We'll never know, probably, but you know. You'll have to ask him. Well, there is a lot more that we could talk about. And, you know, we barely scratched the surface of some of these parties that have withdrawn. But now there's questions about where their voters go. But we still have a couple more weeks left in this election cycle. Election in Israel is March 23rd. So there will be a lot more to watch and a lot more to talk about. And in the meantime, I encourage you to check out all of Israel Policy Forum's resources on the election, as well as on other issues, including recommendations for the Biden administration's policy on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, our weekly Kaplau column, other episodes of the podcast, the weekly Israel Policy Briefing on Zoom, and other opportunities that we will be offering. So until we meet again, stay safe, stay healthy, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of Israel Policy Pod. 